Chapters 11 and 12 of Over the Top. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Over the Top by Arthur Empey. Chapter 11. Also entitled Over the Top. In my second trip to the trenches, our officer was making his rounds of inspection, and we received the cheerful news that at four in the morning, we were to go over the top and take the German front-line trench. My heart turned to lead. Then the officer carried on with his instructions. To the best of my memory, I recall them as follows. At eleven, a wiring party will go out in front and cut lanes through our barbed wire for the passage of troops in the morning. At two o'clock, our artillery will open up with an intense bombardment, which will last until four. Upon the lifting of the barrage, the first of the three waves will go over. Then he left. Some of the Tommies, first getting permission from the sergeant, went into the machine-gunner's dugout and wrote letters home, saying that in the morning they were going over the top, and also that if the letters reached their destination it would mean that the writer had been killed. These letters were turned over to the captain with instructions to mail same in the event of the writer's being killed. Some of the men made out their wills in their paybook under the caption, Will and Last Testament. Then the nerve-wracking wait commenced. Every now and then I would glance at the dial of my wristwatch and was surprised to see how fast the minutes passed by. About five minutes to two I got nervous waiting for our guns to open up. I could not take my eyes from my watch. I crouched against the parapet and strained my muscles in a death-like grip upon my rifle. As the hands on my watch showed two o'clock, a blinding red flare lighted up the sky in our rear then thunder, intermixed with a sharp, whistling sound in the air over our heads. The shells from our guns were speeding on their way towards the German lines. With one accord, the men sprang up on the fire-step and looked over the top in the direction of the German trenches. A line of bursting shells lighted up no man's land. The din was terrific, and the ground trembled. Then, high above our heads, we could hear a sighing moan. Our big boys behind the line had opened up, and 9.2s and 15-inch shells commenced dropping into the German lines. The flash of the guns behind the lines, the scream of the shells through the air, and the flare of them bursting, was a spectacle that put Payne's greatest display into the shade. The constant pup-pup of German machine guns and an occasional rattle of rifle firing gave me the impression of a huge audience applauding the work of the batteries. Our eighteen-pounders were destroying the German barbed wire, while the heavier stuff was demolishing their trenches and bashing in dugouts or funk holes. Then Fritz got busy. Their shells went screaming overhead, aimed in the direction of the flares from our batteries. Trench mortars started dropping minis in our front line. We clicked several casualties. Then they suddenly ceased. Our artillery had taped or silenced them. During the bombardment you could almost read a newspaper in our trench. Sometimes in the flare of a shell burst, a man's body would be silhouetted against the parados of the trench, and it appeared like a huge monster. You could hardly hear yourself think. When an order was to be passed down the trench, you had to yell it, using your hands as a funnel into the ear of the man sitting next to you on the fire step. In about twenty minutes a generous rum issue was doled out. After drinking the rum, which tasted like varnish and sent a shudder through your frame, 
you wondered why they made you wait until the lifting of the barrage before going over. At ten minutes to four, word was passed down, ten minutes to go. Ten minutes to live. We were shivering all over. My legs felt as if they were asleep. Then word was passed down. First wave, get on and near the scaling ladders. These were small wooden ladders which we had placed against the parapet to enable us to go over the top on the lifting of the barrage. Ladders of death, we called them, and veritably they were. Before a charge, Tommy is the politest of men. There is never any pushing or crowding to be first up these ladders. We crouched around the base of the ladders, waiting for the word to go over. I was sick and faint, and was puffing away at an unlighted fag. Then came the word, Three minutes to go, upon the lifting of the barrage and on the blast of the whistles, over the top with the best of luck and give em hell. The famous phrase of the Western Front. The Jonah phrase of the Western Front. To Tommy it means if you are lucky enough to come back, you will be minus an arm or a leg. Tommy hates to be wished the best of luck. So when peace is declared, if it ever is, and you meet a Tommy on the street, just wish him the best of luck and duck the brick that follows. I glanced again at my wristwatch. We all wore them, and you could hardly call us sissies for doing so. It was a minute to four. I could see the hand move to the twelve, then a dead silence. It hurt. Everyone looked up to see what had happened, but not for long. Sharp whistle-blasts rang out along the trench, and with a cheer the men scrambled up the ladders. The bullets were cracking overhead, and occasionally a machine-gun would rip and tear the top of the sandbag parapet. How I got up that ladder I will never know. The first ten feet out in front was agony. Then we passed through the lanes in our barbed wire. I knew I was running, but could feel no motion below the waist. Patches on the ground seemed to float to the rear, as if I were on a treadmill and scenery was rushing past me. The Germans had put a barrage of shrapnel across no man's land, and you could hear the pieces slap the ground about you. After I had passed our barbed wire and gotten into no man's land, a Tommy about fifteen feet to my right front turned around and, looking in my direction, put his hand to his mouth and yelled something which I could not make out on account of the noise from the bursting shells. Then he coughed, stumbled, pitched forward, and lay still. His body seemed to float to the rear of me. I could hear sharp cracks in the air about me. These were caused by passing rifle bullets. Frequently, to my right and left, little spurts of dirt would rise into the air, and a ricochet bullet would whine on its way. If a Tommy should see one of these little spurts in front of him, he would tell the nurse about it later. The crossing of no man's land remains a blank to me. Men on my right and left would stumble and fall. Some would try to get up, while others remained huddled and motionless. Then smashed-up barbed wire came into view and seemed carried on a tide to the rear. Suddenly in front of me loomed a bashed-in trench about four feet wide. Queer-looking forms like mud-turtles were scrambling up its wall. One of these forms seemed to slip and then rolled to the bottom of the trench. I leaped across this intervening space. The man to my left seemed to pause in mid-air, then pitched head down into the German trench. I laughed out loud in my delirium. Upon alighting on the other side of the trench I came to with a sudden jolt, 
right in front of me loomed a giant form with a rifle which looked about ten feet long, on the end of which seemed seven bayonets. These flashed in the air in front of me. Then through my mind flashed the admonition of our bayonet instructor back in Blighty. He had said, Whenever you get in a charge, and run your bayonet up to the hilt into a German, the fritz will fall. Perhaps your rifle will be wrenched from your grasp. Do not waste time. If the bayonet is fouled in his equipment, by putting your foot on his stomach and tugging at the rifle to extricate the bayonet, simply press the trigger, and the bullet will free it. In my present situation this was fine logic, but for the life of me I could not remember how he had told me to get my bayonet into the German. To me this was the paramount issue. I closed my eyes and lunged forward. My rifle was torn from my hands. I must have gotten the German because he had disappeared. About twenty feet to my left front was a huge Prussian nearly six feet four inches in height, a fine specimen of physical manhood. The bayonet from his rifle was missing, but he clutched the barrel in both hands, was swinging the butt around his head. I could almost hear the swish of the butt passing through the air. Three little Tommies were engaged with him. They looked like pygmies alongside of the Prussian. The Tommy on the left was gradually circling to the rear of his opponent. It was a funny sight to see them duck the swinging butt and try to jab him at the same time. The Tommy nearest me received the butt of the German's rifle in a smashing blow below the right temple. It smashed his head like an eggshell. He pitched forward on his side, and a convulsive shudder ran through his body. Meanwhile the other Tommy had gained the rear of the Prussian. Suddenly about four inches of bayonet protruded from the throat of the Prussian soldier, who staggered forward and fell. I will never forget the look of blank astonishment that came over his face. Then something hit me in the left shoulder and my left side went numb. It felt as if a hot poker were being driven through me. I felt no pain, just a sort of nervous shock. A bayonet had pierced me from the rear. I fell backwards on the ground, but was not unconscious, because I could see dim objects moving around me. Then a flash of light in front of my eyes and unconsciousness. Something had hit me on the head. I have never found out what it was. I dreamed I was being tossed about in an open boat on a heaving sea, and opened my eyes. The moon was shining. I was on a stretcher being carried down one of our communication trenches. At the advanced first aid post my wounds were dressed, and then I was put into an ambulance and sent to one of the base hospitals. The wounds in my shoulder and head were not serious and in six weeks I had rejoined my company for service in the front line. Chapter 12. Bombing The boys in this section welcomed me back, but there were many strange faces. Several of our men had gone west in that charge, and were lying somewhere in France, with a little wooden cross at their heads. We were in rest billets. The next day our captain asked for volunteers for bombers' school. I gave my name and was accepted. I had joined the suicide club, and my troubles commenced. Thirty-two men of the battalion, including myself, were sent to, I can't tell you where, where we went through a course in bombing. Here we were instructed in the uses, methods of throwing, and manufacture of various kinds of hand grenades, from the old jam tim, now obsolete, to the present Mills bomb, the standard of the British Army. 
It all depends where you are as to what you are called. In France they call you a bomber and give you medals, while in neutral countries they call you an anarchist and give you life. From the very start the Germans were well equipped with effective bombs and trained bomb throwers, but the English army was as little prepared in this important department of fighting as in many others. At bombing school an old sergeant of the Grenadier Guards, whom I had the good fortune to meet, told me of the discouragements this branch of the surface suffered before they could meet the Germans on an equal footing. Pacifists and small army people in the U.S. please read with care. The first English expeditionary force had no bombs at all, but it clicked a lot of casualties from those thrown by the Boche. One bright morning someone higher up had an idea, and issued an order detailing two men from each platoon to go to bombing school to learn the duties of a bomber and how to manufacture bombs. Non-commissioned officers were generally selected for this course. After about two weeks at school, they returned to their units in rest billets or in the fire trench, as the case might be, and got busy teaching their platoons how to make jam tins. Previously, an order had been issued for all ranks to save empty jam tins for the manufacture of bombs. A professor of bombing would sit on the fire step in the front trench with the remainder of his section crowding around to see him work. On his left would be a pile of empty and rusty jam tins, while beside him on the fire step would be a miscellaneous assortment of material used in the manufacture of the jam tins. Tommy would stoop down, get an empty jam tin, take a handful of clay mud from the parapet, and line the inside of the tin with this substance. Then he would reach over, pick up his detonator and explosive, and insert them in the tin, the fuse protruding. On the fire step would be a pile of fragments of shell, shrapnel balls, bits of iron, nails, etc. Anything that was hard enough to send over to Fritz, he would scoop up a handful of this junk and put it in the bomb. Sometimes one of the platoon would ask him what he did this for, and he would explain that when the bomb exploded, these bits would fly about and kill or wound any German hit by same. The questioner would immediately pull a button off his tunic and hand it to the bomb maker with, Well, blind me, send this over as a souvenir. Or another Tommy would volunteer an old rusty and broken jackknife. Both would be accepted and inserted. Then the professor would take another handful of mud and fin the tin, after which he would punch a hole in the lid of the tin and put it over the top of the bomb, the fuse sticking out. Then perhaps he would tightly wrap wire around the outside of the tin and the bomb was ready to send over to Fritz with Tommy's compliments. A piece of wood about four inches long and two inches wide had been issued. This was to be strapped on the left forearm by means of two leather straps, and was like the side of a matchbox. It was called a striker. There was a tip like the head of a match on the fuse of the bomb. To ignite the fuse, you had to rub it on the striker, just the same as striking a match. The fuse was timed to five seconds or longer. Some of the fuses issued in those days would burn down in a second or two, while others would sizz for a week before exploding. Back in Blighty, the munition workers weren't quite up to snuff, the way they are now. If the fuse took a notion to burn too quickly, they generally buried the bomb-maker next day. So making bombs could not be called a cushy or safe job. 
After making several bombs, the professor instructs the platoon in throwing them. He takes a jam tin from the fire step, trembling a little because it is nervous work, especially when new at it, lights the fuse on his striker. The fuse begins to sizz and sputter in a spiral of smoke, like that from a smoldering fag, rises from it. The platoon splits in two and ducks around the traverse nearest to them. They don't like the looks and sound of the burning fuse. When that fuse begins to smoke and sizz, you want to say good-bye to it as soon as possible. So Tommy, with all his might, chucks it over the top and crouches against the parapet, waiting for the explosion. Lots of times in bombing, the jam tin would be picked up by the Germans before it exploded and thrown back at Tommy with dire results. After a lot of men went west in this manner, an order was issued, reading something like this. To all ranks in the British Army, after igniting the fuse and before throwing the jam tin bomb, count slowly, one, two, three. This in order to give the fuse time enough to burn down so that the bomb would explode before the Germans could throw it back. Tommy read the order. He reads them all, but after he ignited the fuse and it began to smoke, orders were forgotten, and away she went, in record time, and back she came to the further discomfort of the thrower. Then another order was issued to count, one hundred, two hundred, three hundred. But Tommy didn't care if the order read to count up to a thousand by quarters. He was going to get rid of that jam tin, because from experience he had learned not to trust it. When the powers that be realized that they could not change Tommy, they decided to change the type of bomb, and did so, substituting the hairbrush, the cricket ball, and later the Mills bomb. The standard bomb used in the British Army is the Mills. It is about the shape and size of a large lemon. Although not actually a lemon, Fritz insists that it is. Perhaps he judges it by the havoc caused by its explosion. The Mills bomb is made of steel, the outside of which is corrugated into forty-eight small squares, which, upon the explosion of the bomb, scatter in a wide area, wounding or killing any Fritz who is unfortunate enough to be hit by one of the flying fragments. Although a very destructive and efficient bomb, the Mills has the confidence of the thrower, in that he knows it will not explode until released from his grip. It is a mechanical device with a lever, fitted into a slot at the top, which extends halfway around the circumference and is held in place at the bottom by a fixing pin. In this pin there is a small metal ring, for the purpose of extracting the pin, when ready to throw. You do not throw a bomb the way a baseball is thrown, because, when in a narrow trench, your hand is liable to strike against the parados, traverse, or parapet, and then down goes the bomb, and in a couple of seconds or so, up goes Tommy. In throwing, the bomb and lever are grasped in the right hand, the left foot is advanced, knee stiff, about once and a half its length to the front, while the right leg, knee bent, is carried slightly to the right. The left arm is extended at an angle of forty-five degrees, pointing in the direction the bomb is to be thrown. This position is similar to that of shot-putting, only that the right arm is extended downward. Then you hurl the bomb from you with an overhead bowling motion, the same as in cricket. Throwing it fairly high in the air, this in order to give the fuse a chance to burn down, so that when the bomb lands, 
it immediately explodes and gives the Germans no time to scamper out of its range or to return it. As the bomb leaves your hand, the lever, by means of a spring, is projected into the air and falls harmlessly to the ground a few feet in front of the bomber. When the lever flies off, it releases a strong spring, which forces the firing pin into a percussion cap. This ignites the fuse, which burns down and sets off the detonator, charged with fulminate of mercury, which explodes the main charge of ammonia. The average British soldier is not an expert at throwing. It is a new game to him. Therefore the Canadians and Americans, who have played baseball from the kindergarten up, take naturally to bomb-throwing and excel in this act. A six-foot English bomber will stand in awed silence when he sees a little five-foot-nothing Canadian outdistance his throw by several yards. I have read a few war stories of bombing, where baseball pitchers curve their bombs when throwing them, but a pitcher who can do this would make Christy Mathewson look like a piker, and is losing valuable time playing in the European War Bush League, when he would be able to set the big league on fire. We had had a cushy time while at this school. In fact, to us it was a regular vacation, and we were very sorry when one morning the adjutant ordered us to report at headquarters for transportation and rations to return to our units up the line. Arriving at our section, the boys once again tendered us the glad mitt, but looked askance at us out of the corners of their eyes. They could not conceive, as they expressed it, how a man could be such a blinking idiot to join the suicide club. I was beginning to feel sorry that I had become a member of said club, and my life to me appeared doubly precious. Now that I was a sure enough bomber, I was praying for peace and hoping that my services as such would not be required. End of chapter